Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and I'm glad you're with us. Several things command rather immediate attention, including a whistleblower who says Facebook monetizes hate and the release of the so-called Pandora Papers, an eye-opening look at what politicians and others do with the huge sums of money they make. Hint, they put it in offshore bank accounts. We'll deal with both in next week's episode as they are both moving and changing very quickly. A few episodes back, I talked about the divide that exists between moderate and progressive black Democrats. Well, now the divide is threatening to become a permanent schism between moderate and progressive Democrats in Congress generally. At issue is nothing less than President Joe Biden's agenda. For those like me who have trouble following this, there are two bills on the table. That's right, two bills on the table. One is the infrastructure bill, building, of course, roads, bridges, etc. That costs just over a trillion dollars. There's also a larger bill, sometimes called the safety net bill, that has several provisions that progressive Democrats want, like expanding access to health care and education and fighting climate change. And quite a few others, as a matter of fact. The cost of that bill is somewhere around $3.5 trillion. Now, it ought to be said right off the top that when we talk about these figures, trillions of dollars, we're not talking about one-year or single-year outlays of that much money. These are over, whether it's the infrastructure bill or the safety net bill, these are over fairly long periods of time. So the fact of the matter is it may end up being a certain number of billions of dollars, but not $3.5 trillion coming out of next year's budget, because there would be no next year's budget. Moderate Democrats in the Senate, like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, want the cost of the safety net bill to be cut. This is where the tension exists. For the better part of a decade, progressives have seen their concerns and interests pushed to one side at the behest of moderates preaching party unity, among other things. In this case, the progressives seem to have dug in their heels. And well, they should. They're nervous that moderates will sell them out on the reconciliation bill, the safety net bill, so a good number of them are refusing to vote for the infrastructure bill. Enough of them, in fact, for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to postpone a vote while she tries to line up those votes. Enough to get at least the infrastructure bill passed. Progressives have been sold down the river before, but this time they actually seem prepared to blow up Biden's agenda to get what they want. This is fascinating, at least to me, on several levels. As happened so often in the past, one or two recalcitrant senators have held progressive legislation hostage. In this case, it's Joe Manchin and Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema. They both support the infrastructure bill while hedging on the safety net legislation. Both seem willing to horse trade, which may be a good thing, but progressives, again, have seen this happen before only to vote for half a loaf, which they don't seem to be ready to do this time. There is, thankfully, time to negotiate a viable compromise. After all, these folks are members of the same political party. It does my heart good, though, to see the so-called left wing of the party standing up to the moderate naysayers. 
Manchin says he doesn't want to see America become an entitlement society. This even though he makes an estimated half million dollars a year in dividends from coal company stock that he owns. Some might call that hypocrisy. I'll leave it to you to decide. One thing is for sure though, Manchin in his role as chief Democrat refusenik has raised his profile quite a bit. I saw a picture the other day of him coming, I guess coming out of a session or something in the Senate, and he was utterly surrounded by media, as if he was some rock star or somebody who had flown to the moon or something. It was absolutely amazing to see this one guy and the huge gaggle of press that wanted to hear and actually, I guess, uh, kind of hinged on his every single word. Now, I think that he is the one that Joe Biden and others have to kowtow to in order to get things done on Capitol Hill. He's following, by the way, in the footsteps of former Senator Joe Lieberman, a one-man bulwark against even programs that end up being popular. Keep in mind that the infrastructure bill was originally negotiated by Manchin and Cinema. What usually happens in these things is that progressives are told they need to jettison some of the things they want in the reconciliation bill in order to get both pieces of legislation passed. I, for one, would love to see the progressive wing of the party maintain its hardball stance. It may end up making Nancy Pelosi look bad in the short term, but I believe they're fighting for what's right. What I'm sure irritates the moderates is that the reconciliation bill would be funded through taxes on the wealthy. Nothing makes some Democrats act like Republicans more than the notion of taxing the rich. Just ask AOC. The White House is putting on a happy face and saying the two sides will come together and pass both bills. Maybe, but the political landscape is starting to change for those who pay attention. Members of Congress who wear their moderate street cred like a badge of honor may find it comes back to haunt them at the ballot box. More and more progressives are running for office, both in Congress and in state legislatures. There are some who even have the guts, and I, I, I say this advisedly, but you know, I, I'm too old to worry about how people feel about this. I, they have the guts to call themselves socialists, which at one time, uh, until very recently, and may, some might argue even now, is the death knell for politicians. Well, you know what? Not so much anymore. People used to think, and Democrats used to think, that calling yourself an unabashed socialist was a non-starter with the American public. I'm not so sure that's actually the case anymore, and we can get into a long and protracted discussion about what a socialist actually is and what the word socialism actually means. Now, certainly some of these insurgent socialists will lose, but not all of them. That means progressive negotiating tactics may get tougher, and to me, that is a good thing. So too are both these bills, infrastructure and safety net. I'm not arguing that one is better than the other, or that uh, they're both bad, which is what the Republicans say. To the extent both initiatives have the enthusiastic support of the president, it does show that Joe Biden's heart is in the right place. He's also made a significant concession 
to progressives by making the safety net bill the priority, as the infrastructure bill is now on the back burner. I would like to see unity between the progressive and moderate wings of the Democratic Party. I just want to see a bit more equity than has been the case sometimes in the past. Is that too much to ask? I really hope not. Up next, Trump wants his Twitter account back. Does anybody care? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Well, much as I hate to talk about the man, Donald Trump is at it again. The grifter former president is now suing to get Twitter to restore his account. He wants a federal district court judge to issue an injunction forcing Twitter to restore his account pending the outcome of a lawsuit he filed against the social media behemoth. I won't bore you with all the twisted legal jargon Trump's lawyers are using to accomplish his aim. Suffice to say, he's referenced the First Amendment, which of course applies to government infringement, infringement that is, on free speech, not a private corporation. However, step back for a minute and think what Twitter means to Donald Trump. He had 88 million followers during his presidency, and his access to the platform allowed him to spew misinformation to a large segment of the American public. It also allowed him to direct his followers to various websites that raised money in his name. And we should not underestimate the importance of money to the likes of Donald Trump. For the record, his account was suspended two days after the attack on the Capitol. That would be January 8th of this year. And of course, some people blame Trump for fomenting that attack on the Capitol. He's also basing his case on censorship, saying the platform has power and control over discourse in America. I'm not even sure Twitter would want to own that one. None of this, of course, means Trump will prevail in this effort. Most legal experts I've read use a variation of Snowball's chance in hell to describe his uh, options in this. So why is he doing it? Could it be that the civil and criminal probes of his conduct are closing in on him, which it appears they are? Is it that even some of his supporters are grudgingly admitting, grudgingly admitting that is, that he lost last year, even if he won't? In order to promote himself and his myths, Trump must have unfettered access to his followers. Twitter provided that. Despite making noise about finding another platform or even starting one of his own, he's come up empty. It's gotten so ridiculous that he's lauding the audit of the vote in Texas. In case you're wondering, Donald Trump won Texas. Will Texas follow Arizona, whose sham audit showed Biden won by more votes than the official tally? Talk about desperate cries for attention. If there's one thing we know about Donald Trump is that he can't stand not being the center of attention. And yet here he is filing a frivolous lawsuit to keep his name in the news. Some people may think he's doing this as a prelude to running for president again in 2024. I still think he won't run, 
but he does enjoy the stranglehold he has on the Republican Party from top to bottom. Let's see how long he can keep it up. Meanwhile, not so long ago in a galaxy not far away, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has found out he's run out of room when it comes to the lies he told about the Sandy Hook massacre back in 2012. I take this very, very personally because I actually attended the Sandy Hook School and actually went to Newtown, Connecticut, where I was raised, to cover the massacre the night after. Actually, it wasn't even the night after. It was the same night that it took place. It was certainly uh, a numbing and yet transformative experience for me, walking among people who, have, who were still at that point processing what had happened, the totality, the enormity of what happened. And again, as a child, or even as an adult, your mind goes back to those days when you attended the very school where this massacre took place. Now, Jones, for the record, called the massacre, which killed 20 children and six adults, a hoax. And the victims, crisis actors, which I had never heard the term before, but he managed to, I guess, troll up a definition for it. In the years since, Jones and his website InfoWars have been sued by a number of parents of Sandy Hook victims for the damages his lies cost them. Several, for example, received death threats. That's right, death threats from people who bought Jones's lies. As a matter of fact, one person was sentenced to jail, I think it was for five or six months, after being convicted of threatening the lives of parents of victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. From the first lawsuit, Jones and Infowars have refused to turn over documents as ordered by the courts. By the way, the court that cracked his kneecaps in this case twice is in Texas, not in Connecticut. The judgments made by Judge Maya Garrett Gamble found him and his website liable for all damages, and now a jury will be convened to assess just how much he owes these plaintiffs. The Huffington Post, which broke the story, says default judgments like this are very rare and happen when a defendant consistently refuses to follow the orders of the court, in this case, handing over documents related to the case. Isn't it interesting that Alex Jones, whose constituents generally look at themselves as law-abiding, patriotic Americans, seem to have no problem with ignoring orders for documents and even ignoring judgments for court costs, to the tune of $150,000, by the way, and the courts aren't done with him yet. In all, Nine families have sued Jones for his lies about Sandy Hook. My only question is this. Why hasn't Alex Jones been locked up for such blatant contempt of court? Why has he been allowed to blatantly ignore court orders? As recently as two years ago, Jones admitted in a deposition that he knew Sandy Hook wasn't a hoax. Yet he can't remember the basic facts about the massacre, the one he dubbed a hoax with such certainty. Which brings us back to a central question about right-wing media. Is there no limit on their ability 
to lie. Yes, I believe the First Amendment is inviolate, and not all right-wing media people lie, and lie deliberately. And then there's Alex Jones and Infowars. What's to be done with people like this? My brother, Clayton, rest his soul, always told me the best way to counter bad speech is with better speech. Is there better speech than Jones and Infowars out here? And then the question becomes, how do you get people to believe the truth? Last but not least in this episode, dollar stores hit a big bump in the road. Will they have to raise wages and prices just to stay alive? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Dollar stores, those ubiquitous places where cheap goods can be had at low prices, seem to have hit a speed bump in the road of late. The New York Times has an interesting article that points to several factors that are hurting these stores, once considered huge profit centers. So much so that one in three retail stores scheduled to open in the U.S. this year is a dollar store. Many people don't think much of dollar stores. And they're the kind of retail of last resort, the place poor folks go to buy stuff that probably won't last them very long, if at all. Well, the pandemic, which at first increased people flocking to these stores, now has presented a new set of challenges. One, and this is the one that kind of interests me more than the others, is worker burnout. As other stores have raised their workers' wages, dollar stores are now finding themselves paying less than their competitors, in some cases, way less. That, coupled with long hours, makes for workers who decide to leave the minute something better comes along. And in some cases, even before something better comes along. There are also supply chain issues since much of the items sold in dollar stores come from overseas. Dollar stores aren't unique in this regard, but they are now faced with passing increased costs to their consumers. That, in some cases, means no longer actually being dollar stores. And in contrast to managing uh, to managers, that is, working longer hours, dollar stores' part-time workers don't even always get enough work. Not enough workers too often results in disorganized shelves in dollar stores and long lines at the checkout counters. Now, to stay to say in fairness, short staffing is not unique to dollar stores. You see it more and more often because, in part, post-pandemic, as we've talked about before, people are taking a long look at their work choices. This is why you see so many help wanted or we're hiring signs, not just in retail stores, but also in the fast food industry. While dollar stores began and expanded to fill a specific need for inexpensive goods among low-income customers, will they be able to keep their prices lower than the norm and still pay decent wages to their employees? Again, 
the question of wages is the one that concerns me most. You know, you see people in stores, and if you think it's easy to stock the bottom shelf in a store, any store, just come and watch what people, because they're on their knees, and they're moving across these shelves on their knees, putting stock in. It is not an easy job. It's not an easy job in a supermarket, and it is not an easy job in a dollar store. Now, I'm not one, because I've used dollar stores in the past, uh, I'm not one to necessarily dog them for who they serve or how they serve them. I do know if I walk into a dollar store looking for a specific item, A, it's because I can't find it in other places, and B, I realize that it's a dollar store, so whatever I buy there is not going to last very long, and I'm going to have to go out not long afterward and find that same item in a store that has the product that may last a bit longer. But dollar stores do serve their purpose. Now, I will say that I think they were started uh, through a, I guess you might call it a cynical look at the U.S. economy, at the U.S. workforce, and the U.S. consumer. They all came together. You, know, you don't have to pay them much. Uh, and people who are coming into these stores are using them as the retail of last resort. And they make a huge profit. You know, I, and I don't want to necessarily liken them to some other uh, implements that are aimed at low-income consumers. I could, but I'm not going to. All I'm saying is, will the dollar stores be able to maintain low prices, fix the supply chains without which they have no product, and raise wages to a livable level and fix their part-time problems? Maybe or maybe not. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.